The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Uh, so please tell me if, this, if the volume is, is not okay. Does that sound okay? <laughs> so, um, tonight we'll continue the uh, second part of this three-part series on uh, self and not-self um, in, in Buddhist practice. Um, and what I thought to do first is just review a little bit of what I talked about last week and see if there's any questions about that. Um, so, the, so the highlights of, of last week. Um, when we look for a self, when we look for a separate self, we can't find it. You know, so nothing in our experience, nothing in our, our body or our mind, our thinking, our emotions, uh, our opinions, our views, nothing can qualify as a self, as, as a kind of independent, um, lasting over time, a separate self. Um, you know, so that's, that's uh, the, the Buddha's teaching. Um, what we do experience, um, and sometimes very strongly, is a sense of self. You know, a sense, a sense that I am, a sense of this kind of separate me that, uh, you know, that, you know, that has desires, that has dislikes, that uh, has an agenda, that, that wants to be... Uh, you know, safe, secure, protected, defended, all that. So we do experience a sense of self quite strongly. And uh, uh, what the suggestion uh, to look at here is that um, this sense of self that we experience uh, is an activity. You know, it's, it's a doing. Um, it's not something that's always there. It's actually, you know, it's, it's something we build. It's something we construct. Um, so how? how? How do we do that? Um, we construct this sense of self, you know, sometimes it's called selfing, um, through the movement of mind that, that grasps, that clings, that holds on, uh, that identifies with, you know, whatever as being, that's me. That's me or that's mine. Um, you know, that movement of mind is what creates a self, what creates a sense of self. You know, so, for example, uh, when we compare ourselves to others, a self is born. You know, all those people must be more, must be better meditators than me or... Uh, everyone's looking at me, I'm so embarrassed, you know, anything like that. Um, or, you know, I'm the only one here who, who really knows how to sit, you know. This is, this is a comparing mind. Um, uh, in in, in uh, Buddhist terms, that's called conceit. And it, it's not just the, the way we use the word a conceit is, you know, I think I'm better than you, so I'm conceited. But uh, in this use of the word conceit, it's any kind of comparing. So, 
uh, I think I'm better than you, or I think I'm worse than you, or I think I'm equal to you. Those three are considered conceit, form of comparing mind, and a way we make a self and a form of suffering. So um, another way is when we take on possessions as being mine. You know, so um, any form of possessiveness, it could be about things, it could be about other people, it could be about ideas. Um, A self is born. Um, And the third way is uh, when we identify with some story or view. You know, so um, if you get, if you get, Upset, you know. One time, I, uh, when I had just after I had just graduated from college, and I was living with um, some roommates, some friends in a house in Sunnyvale, and something happened, and I was just starting a new job, and there's all kinds of excuses, and I was very stressed, and something happened with a roommate, and I just, you know, got really angry, and just, you know, um, kind of exploded on him, and. Um, and it's like you know you could have an interaction with someone and then maybe uh, in my mind it's you know I'm an angry person or they may have a, a, have a sense of me as oh, this person you know oh he's angry or he has whatever you know um, any view we have, any view we have about ourselves. Um, and when we identify with that view, a self is born. So me, myself, mine. And, and so when we hold to these views, these, you know, making a kind of identity, um, when we believe them and when we let them define who we are, uh, we suffer um, because what we're clinging to, what we're grasping to, uh, these are impermanent. Um, because they're impermanent, if we identify with them, we call them ourself, um, we're going to suffer. And so this isn't to say that a healthy sense of self isn't important. You know, of course it is. And uh, part of this is the, is the terminology. Um, one of the things that was brought up in the last talk was, um, you know, isn't it important to have a healthy sense of self, he- you know, healthy psychological sense of self? Um, and, and what I would say is... Um, you know, it's very important to have this view, um, and, I, and I think Buddhism and the Dharma supports this view, is that you matter. You know, what you do is important. You're, you're valuable and you're unique. And something about cherishing that uniqueness. Um, when we're caught up in this sense of self, this small self, this grasping self, um, in a way that obstructs the, our full self-expression. That may create fear, that may create anxiety. Those are the things that block us from really expressing our uniqueness, from really ex- expressing ourself. 
So something about this balance or something about how we understand self. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, so, the, so this movement in practice is just to notice when, you know, when we're creating this extra sense of self, when there's something extra. Um, Gill sometimes calls this um, wind drag. Maybe you've heard that. It's like, you know, this form of the grasping self is a kind of wind drag. It slows us down. Um, it obstructs something. Uh, it's extra. It's not needed. So, does anyone have any questions or comments or thoughts about that before we we go into the? So um, I'm also curious about what selfing is about when you're talking more about relationship too. So if there's, and sometimes I feel like a Neanderthal trying to grasp this <laughs> understanding. Or, um, so if, being in a relationship with partner or spouse, there's that essence. What is that called? There's a another sort of like a self for a, a couple or um, if, and we talk about why we love somebody else. So if you're trying to say why you love someone, but the, it seems like you're using qualities that have to do with, I don't know, if there's no sense of self, then how, how do you tell the difference between loving one person or the other? <laughs> Am I like totally? I'm totally lost with this whole thing. <laughs> um, let me see if I understand the question. So, I mean, what I would say is um, there's a, there's a kind of a self that arises in relation to other people, you know? um, and then there's also um, I mean, so so what I would say is that, you know, um, the, this teaching of not self is not denying the person's uniqueness or individuality, or their kind of sense of integrity. You know, the integrity to the the person. You know, it's like you're you. I mean, not only do you have your social security number and blah 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 blah, but like, you know. There are contours to you that continue, that, ha- that have a kind of continuation in time. You know, just like a river has, you know, it, it has a shape, you know, it has like the river banks and it has a, you know, it, it has a certain recognizable contour to it. But it's not like you can pull out something and say, this is the river, you know, and it's something that's always changing and flowing within a kind of a contour. So, um, you know, an integrated sense of self or an integrated personhood, um, a sense of relatedness, you know, trying to find the language that can address, you know, maybe what I think you're talking about is this sense of continuity, um, which is there without, without, and I think what this teaching is saying is, 
you know, and this is something that I'm going to talk about today in the talk, but just to say, it's like, you could say we go through different self-states, right? You know, one after the other. You know, one moment I'm happy, then I'm bored, then I'm frustrated, then I'm anxious, then I'm, you know, and we have one kind of thought and then another thought and we tell ourselves this and we tell ourselves that. And it's like, what this teaching is saying is we can't pull something out and say, that's me, you know, and those other things aren't me. It's like there's this flow and... um you know, maybe it will, I, I'm not sure if that helps. Um, but I, I, think, I think what I'm going to say may ad- address that, and then if it doesn't, we'll continue. So, um, so, one of the main uh, ways that uh, we talked about the self last week was as, as a sense of contraction or as a point of contraction. You know, it's like there's a division between me and the world. You know, this is very, very clear in the sense of uh, possessiveness. You know, it's like I'm kind of the subject of reality. I'm the center of the world. And then there's all this stuff out there which is kind of, you know, trying to either get or, or get away from. And so this division between self and world, um, sometimes this sense of division or the sense of uh, fragmentation is within ourselves. And that's, that's uh, this inner fragmentation, inner division, or inner conflict. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. Um, it's like another way of approaching uh, this question of self. And to do that, I would like to tell you a story. Um, So once upon a time, uh, a long time ago, uh, in China, uh, there was a young girl. um, And her name was Seijo. And and she was born in a small village. And... uh, she had a best friend, a boy. And they were extremely close. Uh, they did everything together. Uh, they grew up together in this small town, this village. And they always assumed that uh, when they grew up, they would marry each other. Um, but when uh, Seijo reached the age to marry, um, her father chose for her a different young man from the village for her to marry. And she was really upset. Um, Her sweetheart, her her boyfriend, uh, was so distraught that he decided he couldn't stay in this town and uh, watch some other man marry uh, his beloved. So, you know, he couldn't bear to see it, so he decided, I'm going to leave. Uh, without telling anyone, uh, in the middle of the night, uh, he left the village. And he, he, he got in his boat and he, he rowed his boat you know, silently out, out of the village. Uh, as, he was, as he was rowing, uh, he spotted a figure, a silhouette in the dark, running along the riverbank, along the side of the boat. 
And it looked like the figure was following him. So he pulled the boat over to the shore and he got out and he had a closer look and it was Seijo. And she was very upset and she begged him to take her with him, that she, didn't, she couldn't live without him and she didn't want to marry this other guy. And she said, let's run away together. And so that's what they did. Um, they, they went away together, they, um, all the way down the river, far, far away from their home village. And they eventually um, settled down in another town. Uh, they got married. They had two children. And years passed by, and they lived happily. Um, but at some point, a longing arose in Seijo. And uh, you know, she missed her father, who had been very devoted to her. And she wanted him to know his grandchildren uh, before he died. And uh, she told her husband, uh, we should go back and we should make peace with him. Um, Seijo's husband agreed. And so uh, they packed up the kids, got on the boat, and made this long journey back you know, the river to their, to their home village. When they got to the town, Sejo's husband said to her, you wait here in the boat and I will go to your house and explain everything to your father. And so he goes to the house and he knocks on the door and greets her, her father who, who recognizes him. He said, yeah, yeah, I remember you, you know, my daughter's best friend from all those years ago. And Sejo's husband tells the father, uh, listen, I, I have to tell you something. I'm, I'm really, really sorry to tell you this, but Sejo and I ran off together, you know, all those years ago. And now we're, we're happily married. We have, we have kids and we've come back to apologize. Um, uh, and Sejo wants to reconcile with you and wants to have a relationship with you. So hearing this, uh, Seijo's father looks stunned and really puzzled. And he says, I, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about, but it can't be true. Um, because uh, the night you left the village, uh, my daughter Seijo um, fell into a deep depression. She became very sick. She went into her room, into bed, and she hasn't moved. She hasn't left her bed in all these years. She's been, you know, almost like a coma, you know, uh, immobilized, depressed. Uh, she hasn't been able to move or to speak all these years. And now it's Sejo's husband's turn to be shocked. And he says, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what this, this, I know this can't be true because She's with me. He said, listen, she's in the house. She's in her room. So Sejo's husband says, I'm going to go to the boat and get her and bring her to you so you can see for yourself. So he says, uh, hang on. 
<laughs> he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes back to the boat, and he uh, he brings uh, his wife over to her house. Um, maybe you know what what happens next. Um, so the healthy married Seijo, the Seijo who's the wife, uh, walks into the house and, and walks into her old room. And as she opens the door to her old room, uh, the Seijo who has been sick and depressed and unable to move, unable to speak all these years, who's in bed, um, gets out of bed, stands up, and walks over to the married Seijo. Um, and the two of them um, meet each other and they come back together and they become one person. So that's the story. <laughs> and there. <laughs> next week. <laughs> um, this is a story that's used in Zen uh, as, a, as a koan, as a teaching story. And the question at the end of the story is, uh, Seijo and her soul were separated. Which is the real Seijo? Which is the true Seijo? You know, and because the, all these stories are actually really about us, it's like, you know, maybe we could ask the question, uh, you, and, you and your soul were separated, or you and your heart were separated. Which is the real you? I really like this story um, on so many levels. Um, I, think, I think it's such a great illustration of what this practice is. Um, because I think of one way of thinking about what we're doing here is, is kind of addressing this question of separation. Um, you know, so in this story, Seijo, um, she is forcibly separated from something really important to her, you know, from her true love. And she falls sick, you know, she falls into a depression. Um, she can't function. And I think, uh, in a way, the same can hold true for us, you know. It's like when we, um, when we've somehow become estranged we're separated from something that's essential inside of us. Um, we can't really be ourselves. We can't function. Uh, you know, we become sick in, in some way. Um, you know, whether it's physically or emotionally or spiritually. You know, so that's one kind of separation, one kind of suffering. And it's, and it's like that kind of suffering often leads us to this practice in the first place. Um, the sense of something is missing. You know, we don't feel whole. We don't feel complete. Um, 
you know, there may be big parts of us or big areas of our lives that are, are split off from us, that we, that we can't access, that we can't feel, that we're somehow not in touch with. Um, so something about that, wanting to know ourselves, wanting to know who we are. Um, and we have some intuition that this practice is a way to discover this. Um, another form of separation uh, can involve the relational world and the different roles that we, that we play, that we have. Um, you know, so Seijo experiences this big conflict between her role as a daughter, as a dutiful daughter, and, you know, as a young person who's in love, who, who wants, to, wants to be with the person she loves, you know, as a person who has emotional needs. You know, this was a big conflict for her. Um, you know, I know for myself, I'm a son and a father and a brother and a husband and a, you know, uh, I have some new roles and, you know, starting to be a teacher and uh, sometimes they're in conflict. Um, and, you know, which, so, you know, so which is the real me? Um, and what do I do when, when these roles conflict? Uh, you know, one example I've told is uh, I, have a, I have a baby, a, a baby who's uh, 10 months old. And when she was younger, maybe two or three months, she would be very fussy. The only way to calm her down was to hold her. Um, and my wife would get so tired and I would, I would kind of take her and we have this kind of carrier and we could kind of wrap her in it and she was really snug. And, and I realized that when she's in the carrier, you know, this would be for hours, you know, be holding her. She's in the carrier, my hands are free, you know, so I could check email and I can, you know, <laughs> do all, you know, listen to Dharma talk or listen to the Japanese language stuff. And um, she didn't like that at all. The, uh, the baby didn't like that. It was like she could tell when my attention was somehow, you know, not, you know, just <laughs> walking up and down. And, you know, she really noticed. So something, you know, something about that. It's like, um, we have different roles. So, you know, what do we do when, you know, how can we give each one, you know, do each one fully? Um, and what do we do when they conflict? Um, so, it's like, what happens when we, when we meditate, when we sit down on the meditation cushion can be a microcosm for our life. And it's one of the, I think, uh, one of the really uh, helpful ways to approach this question is through looking at what happens when we sit. It's like, you know, it's like for me, and in this, you, may, you might relate to this experience, as we sit down to meditate and we have this intention to simply be present, you know, be present for this moment, what we may notice is all the ways that we, you know, split off and separate uh, and avoid 
the experience of this moment. You know, it's like, so we're sitting down, we're like, okay, I'm just going to be here, be with what happens. And what we notice is all the ways the mind tries to uh, split off and separate. You know, so when we're sitting, our body's sitting here in stillness and our mind is wandering, you know, this called the wandering mind. Uh, this is separation. This is an example of this happening um, moment to moment. You know, if I'm sitting here, but I'm thinking about, you know, when I go to Hawaii next month or, you know, whatever, it's, that's a form of separation. Um, or maybe I'm reliving some, some story, some, some, some argument that happened or something that happened in the past. Um, I'm not here. And it's like, so, um, you know, it's like, this is separation. This is clinging when the body's here and the mind is somewhere else. Um, you know, so it's like moment by moment, the body and mind are split in two. Uh, so it's like as we sit, um, it's like over and over, we get to see this. Um, we get to see these very ordinary, very foundational forms of separation. Um, how things are, versus how I want them to be. Uh, how I am versus how I think I should be. Um, uh, one of the things my Zen teacher often says is, the most difficult place to be is here. Uh, and the most difficult thing to do is this. But that's, all, that's another. <laughs> um, you know, so our minds have so many strategies and often unconscious strategies uh, to simply avoid the experience of being here and feeling what we're feeling. Um, you know, so it's, it's a kind of resistance. You know, uh, you know, whatever it is, I'm not here to feel that. Um, you know, and away we go. Restlessness, sleepiness, desire, aversion, doubt, uh, the ways we separate from this moment. good news is that our practice addresses this really well. And uh, it's said that the distinguishing characteristic of the Dharma is, uh, is non, non-harming, non-conflict. Um, and I take that to mean not only conflict between people, but also conflict within ourselves, you know, kind of inner conflict. So so something about non-separation within ourselves or non-separation between ourself and the world. Um, And so the question becomes, if this is what the Dharma is, if this is the the distinguishing characteristic of the Dharma, how can we practice this? You know, how do we practice this? And so, so what I would say is that this is not something that we can do. It's not actually something that we can practice. It's more in the realm of something we discover. You know, we, we discover non-conflict. We discover non-separation. Um, and, and the way that we can do that is by setting, helping to set up for ourselves uh, favorable conditions to make that happen. Um, so what I would suggest is, one that, is that one very helpful condition 
uh, one very helpful way of looking, uh, looking at our life or looking at ourself, is, is with this attitude, some kind of attitude of acceptance, um, a form of self-acceptance. Uh, sometimes I think about it as unconditional acceptance, unconditional love, something about that. You know, it's like... Um, we're here we're here to meet our life exactly as it is. Um, and this is what the practice starts with. Um, you know, so we meet ourselves and we meet the many selves that are, that, that make up who we are. Um, and, and we make room for them. Uh, you know, so something about letting them express themselves moment after moment. Um, so, so like, like Seijo, it's we include the self who's in love. We include the self who's depressed. And we include the self uh, that brings th- those two together. You know, it, wh- what we're not trying to do, what we're not here to do, is to change ourselves into something we're not. Uh, you know, or some kind of better version of me. Uh, so, so something about can we see, can we understand um, you know, what's actually already here? Uh, you know, so, so we're engaging with ourselves in this deep way, you know, this, this authentic way. Uh, a number of years ago, when I was about to go into a three-month retreat, uh, I asked Gil for some advice. I said, you know, I said, what should I do, you know, on this long retreat? And he said something like, uh, oh, don't worry, uh, sooner or later you'll bump into yourself. <laughs> and, uh, and I did. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh. Sometimes we bump into ourselves. Sometimes we crash into ourselves. Um, sometimes, you know, we don't realize it, but we're actually at war with ourselves. You know, and one part of us is trying to um, cut off or assassinate uh, another part of ourselves, you know? So there's that. Um, You know, so, you know, so um, does this practice make us invincible in a certain way? Does it make us... uh, the kind of person who has no desires, who has no need for love or respect or anything from anyone else. Um, I'll leave that open. <laughs> you know, or um, does it make us more open? Does it make us more vulnerable? Uh, does it make us more sensitive to suffering? Uh, in ourselves and in others. Uh, 
Uh, you know, so, so, meeting, so meeting ourselves, something about meeting ourselves, and meeting ourselves this way uh, is a process. You know, and just to sit down uh, and to be still and to be present for what's actually happening with, you know, with ourselves moment by moment, I think is this incredibly beautiful, uh, valuable, uh, worthwhile process. Um, and, and it takes a lot of self-respect to do this, to do this practice. And you may not feel that, but it's like, it's, you know, it's like a kind of, uh, you know, to, to do this practice, it takes a lot of, it's, it's kind of like we bow to ourselves. Um, and so, and so in the stillness, uh, as we return, you know, over and over again to just this experience of what's happening, um, we are building a capacity. You know, it's like we're building a capacity to stay with our experience. Um, it's kind of like to, to hang in there, you know, as it changes moment to moment. Um, you know, one moment it may feel, you may feel calm, then you may feel frustrated, then you may have an itch, then you may have a thought, then you may have a, another thought, and then another thought, and then some emotion, and then, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be with my breath, and you go back to the breath. It's like something about building the capacity or building the container uh, that's, that's larger than our, our self-perspective, and that can hold, that can hold all of this, can hold all of this experience with some sense of well-being. Um, you know, so, so what I would say is usually we, we operate in this realm with a lot of preferences. It's, you know, and we want to select out one, one kind of experience or one kind of self-state and say, that's me. Um, you know, that's the real me. We identify with it. It may be something that hooks us, you know, so... Uh, you know, I don't know, you have some encounter with someone and it's like it reconfirms some, some idea I had about myself. So if, if I had an encounter with someone and I felt very shy or very embarrassed and then, you know, that, that really resonates with me because, because I'm shy. Um, but if you had another encounter and you, and, and you, and you weren't shy at all, you know, that doesn't register. It's not like, oh, well, I'm not really shy. Uh, some things hook us, um, you know. So we identify with the, with them, and and then so, so and then sometimes the experiences we don't want, uh, we push those away. We push those into the shadows. We 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 repress them or, or deny them. And so I guess what I want to say about this is, it's not that these, at least my experience, it's not that these experiences change any less or they get any less relentless. But it's that we become more free to move between them, to move between these different self-states, you know? And it's not like, 
you know, it's more like that's just how it was then and this is how it is now. Um, you know, so how freely can we move between our changing moods, our changing stories, our changing views and opinions um, without getting caught? You know, without, it's like, um, this is me, this is how I am, this is how it always is, this is how it will be, etc. Um, I think one, one way we can see this in practice in meditation is if you sit down and you have a really distracted sitting and you're just not present at all and you're just fantasizing and whatever for all, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes and it doesn't bother you at all. You know, and it's like, that's just how it is. That's the way it is right now. You know, fine. Ding, <laughs> time to do the next thing. You know, and you just move to the next thing without holding on to that or without, you know, all kinds of things. And so I, I think that that's one, that's one kind of milestone in practice when we can have some sense of, of you know, not identifying with the contents of our sitting. You know, it's like, it's just the way it is. You know, sometimes it's going to be this way. Sometimes it's going to be that way. Um, so is there a real me? You know, is there a true self in all of this? Um, I think when we when we become used to, when we get practiced in seeing our experience in this world, in, in this way, and, and having some freedom to move uh, between these different roles in our life, between these different uh, constellations of moods, of, of emotions, of, of thoughts, of stories, um, then it's like who we are is simply the activity of the moment. Um, you know, we become the next experience and the next experience and the next experience. Um, so, I mean, that's one answer to your question from last week. Uh, we'll see what you think. Um, and and through the stillness and through this freedom to kind of move between these different selves, um, we become more sensitive to our own suffering. We become more sensitive to the ways we add something extra, you know, of this sense of uh, the self being wind drag. It's like, oh, that's a little bit extra. You know, maybe I didn't need to say that. Um, this, this example just occurs to me of... Uh, a few weeks ago, I had the chance to introduce myself to a group of other teachers, teacher trainees. And then when I was, you know, it's like you have four minutes to kind of sum up your life. And, uh, and then I real, and afterwards I said, ah, maybe I didn't, you know, how, how much of what I said was purely, you know, sharing my heart and how much of it was, well, I kind of want them to know this about me or you know, maybe they should know that I've also done this. And, <laughs> you, know, you know, and so, um, you know, so, so we become more sensitive to the ways we add, we add something extra. Um, 
any kind of, of that self-identification, self-identi- anything that defines us, um, in a way it constricts us, it limits us. And there's a suffering associated with that. Um, and as we can meet our, our suffering with a heart that's open, uh, what arises uh, very naturally is compassion. So, so something about that. I wanted to say something about compassion. Um, you know, com- compassion for all the ways that we separate, you know, and, and, and um, you know, uh, compassion, looking at, our, relating to our own difficulties with kindness. Um, I think, you know, with kindness, with the self-acceptance, uh, this, is, this is a big part of this uh, journey to what I'm calling wholeness as you know, maybe the other side of not-self, uh, wholeness. Um, you know, so to be whole, it's not a static thing. It's a way of relating. It's a way of relating to our experience. And, you know, as the story of Seijo illustrates, it's like it takes a whole person to do this practice. Um, and a big, big part of the meditation practice is learning to include all the different selves that we have, you know, all the different parts of us. Um, and as we sense into our own wholeness, our own perfection, uh, we start to... Uh, experience or perceive uh, the magnificent perfection that's everywhere, that's all around us. So these are some of my thoughts on wholeness and the question of true self. Uh, I have a poem, but maybe I save that to the very end. And... uh, I'd like to hear what you think of this. What is, what is that, uh, what does that bring up for you? So when you're talking about um, noticing the roles that we may be in and noticing when those roles might, from time to time, have uh, appear to be in conflict, then the idea or the practice is basically accepting that rather than trying to come up with solutions to just have one or the other and not choose a particular role but but really be present with that conflict um 
and so, then knowing when you want to do that rather uh, compared to knowing when you really want to identify with a healthy sense of self and fix conflict I uh, so so it's like um Yes. I mean, so the first thing is like, we will have different roles and there's inevitable conflict between them. So, so part of it is, is, is having some sense of, uh, you know, building our capacity to be able to hold, hold these, hold this conflict, hold this paradox or this, um, and, you know, because that's just the way it is. You know, some, there's there's going to be conflict, but it's like, can the different roles be, you know, somewhat like different clothes we put on, as opposed to, um, you know, that's really who I am, is this. But it's like, you know, um, I mean, so just for an example, one way I experience this is when I'm teaching on a meditation retreat and meeting uh, yogis in the interviews, one-to-one interviews. And it's like one person could come in and be um, extremely upset about something, you know, or, 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 or going through something. And it's very emotional and it's very powerful, you know, kind of really with that person and empathizing and really feeling it and talking to that person. And these are 15-minute slots, right? And then, you know, that person leaves. The next person walks in immediately and is so peaceful and so happy. So, you know, and it's like, I don't want to be crying, you know, for the person who comes in, who's, um, I mean, it would be okay if I was, but, you know, something about um, being 100% with that first person in that role, but then being able to let go of it, and okay, it's the next thing, you know. And so... um, that's that's the way I think about it, and it's like, how freely can I, um, you know, move between these these roles, like, you know, so so, you know, a good example in my life is I'll be I like to meditate at night, you know, when everyone's asleep, and you know I'll go and my cushion and wrap my blanket and get really cozy and close my eyes and start breathing, and then I hear, you know. <laughs> you know the baby's up and what what do i do you know well i could just put on my noise canceling headphones and <laughs> that's one way of doing it i could um i could say oh okay you know and just totally let go of whatever i wanted doing and, and say you know this this takes precedent this is more important and i just go pick up the baby you know, with no sense of resentment or, you know, um, you know, uh, this is my time or, you know, I'm, what, you know, what, you know, it's just like, okay, you know, this, this, um, or if there is a sense of resentment, it's like, can that be okay? You know, and um, that's the way I think about it. So, What do you 
Okay, you guys can't hear me? Um, what do you see the role of imagination and vis visualization? Like, can, do you feel like y you can be present and be kind of playing with your mind? Um, in general, I think the role of imagination is very important. And it's very important in practice as well. And it's like, you know, it's very important to have, um, I mean, it's hard to keep doing this without some sense of, you know, some larger vision of what this is about or, uh, you know, an imagination is wonderful. And I think, I feel like in a way, this pra the, more, the more this practice of not-self, you know, kind of Buddhist idea of not-self, the more that deepens, the more that can free us up, you know, to um, express our imagination or, you know, or, or something about that, that freedom of mind. Um, in the meditation itself, um, I think if you're doing vipassana, uh, it's more about seeing clearly and noticing, you know, that you are imagining, you know, that you are visual, something's happening, but not to necessarily feed it or not to kind of um, build it up more. Uh, but there are kinds of practices in, in this tradition, like metta practice and, and other kinds of practice, which are like you consciously uh, call up a person in your mind and you send them love, you know, you send them compassion. And, and visualization is very important in that. And so, yeah, there, yeah, there's a role for it. And some people, some people really love that practice and, and, and take to it a lot. Um, so I, does, does that kind of address your, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think it just depends on the context. And I think in general, uh, they're very important. Um, but just, you know, to sit down and s you just to be clear about what you're doing. You know, if, you, if you're going to sit down and, 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 and kind of be with your breath and body and, you know, and do vipassana, that's one thing. And if you're going to sit down and kind of, you know, um, you know, just Im you know, imagine something wonderful, that's great. <laughs> but, it's, you know, it's, it's, but just to be clear that that's not, you know, meditating in this way, that's you know, that's something else. Or, you know, or to reflect, you know, it can be very helpful to have times of conscious reflection or conscious visualization of sending love, sending compassion, uh, you know, to, to other people, you know, so. Could someone pass the microphone? You mentioned about the metta and the vipassana. What's your take on the Zen way? <laughs> uh, so, so the Zen way in, in terms the of emptiness. How do you approach from that point of my, uh, meditation? Uh, so, uh, did everyone hear the question? Oh, so, so she said, I mentioned, I mentioned vipassana, 
We're doing kind of insight practice, and I mentioned metta. Um, and she wants to know what's my take on Zen and um, how that fits in. Um, one time I asked, when I was living in the Zen monastery, I asked the teacher, what is Zazen? You know, Zazen is, 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 it means meditation in Zen. And he looked at me and he said, Zazen is pouring the water of compassion over your own head. <laughs> so, ooh. <laughs> and I, you know, it, there, and uh, so something about that. For, so for me, my understanding of Zen and the way I practice Zen, the way I appreciate Zen, is, is kind of like what I said, is this form of unconditional love. Giving yourself this form of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. You know, you just sit and you just, uh, you just meet yourself the way you would meet, you know, some, some dear friend who's come in, you know, or some little child, you know, who's, who's walked in and it's just, you know, hi, you know, great to see you, you know, and, you know, whatever happens. Um, the brilliance of Zen is, is in, in my view, this, this way of uh, getting beyond this idea of technique, you know, and it's just like when you sit down, whatever happens is, is you, you know, whatever happens is supposed to happen. Whatever happens is uh, an expression of this moment. And, you know, and just to, just to be it, you know, and that's, that's for me the Zen sense of um, who and what we are is simply uh, this moment, you know, one moment after another, one experience after another. Um, so... Last week, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Last week, and again this week, you've used the word contraction in relation to self. And I've thought about this <laughs> during the past week, not sure how it's connecting. A contraction to me is like you have two words and you blend them, like a positive and a negative, like can and not. And the contraction uh-huh. is can't. <laughs> And so I'm sitting here tonight and wondering, well, are you saying that all these concepts that we have moment to moment of creating who we believe we are, uh, is a con- it's all contracted <laughs> to a self? Um, I don't know if, you, if you're an English teacher. But <laughs> I, I, when I think of the word contraction... I guess the, the, the meaning that I had in my mind was when a woman is in labor. <laughs> Those are the contractions that have been, you know, my mind, my life. And, you know, that kind of uh, very painful, you know, uh, tightening, or what would you say? It's a kind of a gripping. It's a, you know... And to me, that was like this, you know, uh, this example of like, you know, in order to keep a fist as a, as a fist, it has, you know, we have to keep contracting the muscles. We have to keep, you know, otherwise it will just go, it will just open up. 
And that's the same thing in this practice. You know, in order to stay um, in, to, in the fist of the self, um, we, we have to keep doing it. We have to keep contracting. And it's this habit, this habit of mind. Um, and so there's no special formula for, for, for um, you know, wholeness or opening this up or something. It's just, it's just stopping the, the constant contracting. So that was my. Maybe. One more. Hi, I just, I had a question. You know, last week you mentioned about um, not self, and we're really not our our body, um, but also there's. Um, I guess, I was wondering. You know, there's. How you're supposed to really get into the body, and you know, I've heard like, well, uh, a lot of the wisdom of the dharmas in the body. So I just was wondering about your thoughts on that. Yeah. No. That, um, does everyone hear the question? So, um, a big, big part of this practice, at least as I understand it, is becoming more embodied. You know, getting more in touch with our body, really seeing the body. Um, But how we do that is, is, the, is the question. And it's like when we meet sensations of the body with awareness that's not also clinging and identifying it with itself, it's like then we can really anyway, I see, see it as it is, see those sensations as just the body. You know, so we're kind of unentangling our sense of self from the body. Um, but the way to do that is to pay attention to the body, body sensations. Um, but but with a mind that's not identifying, not grasping them as self. You know, it's just it's just knee pain. It's not my knee. You know, so um, maybe just one last one, and then. I'm wondering if there's anything back to roles again. Um, thinking of the self as a role when we're working as a group. So there's an entity of many selves as the one. And speaking of the body, one of the things I can visualize is like if you're in a boat and you're in crew and you're all working together as one and then you could go really fast and you're all working together. Yeah. Or you're working as a, you know, political group or whatever and you're like one. Uh, is there some sort of thoughts with this practice and that kind of... Is that... What is that called? <laughs> um. No, it's it's a great question, and, and some forms of practice, especially Zen. If you've ever seen, you know, if you've ever done Zen practice or been to, you know, Zen monastery, it's like, and it, it's an East Asian, you know, East Asian culture is is very much about the group, and it's really a group practice, and it's like everyone's doing, you know, it's like everyone sits together, then everyone gets up and walks together slowly, in, in synchronized. Then everyone sits again. Then everyone gets up and you know slowly walks. And then, good luck if you say I want to sit longer than other people. You know, or they're going to do work and they say, well, I think I'll just do zazen. But it's like, no, no, no. It's like you, you get up and you do what everyone else does. 
and don't, you know, don't stick out from the group. And it's a form of kind of, you know, deferring my own preferences, basically, you know, to the group. And so it's one form of practice and it's, you know, so that's one way of, uh, but yeah, they, they kind of become this big organism, this big, this, this amazing, um, you know, synchronized beast of synchronous. <laughs> Um, so we're, we're a little bit over. I have a very short poem to read, if that's okay. Or, okay. This is uh, Derek Walcott. Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Derek Walcott. Okay, thank you very much. Good night.